Hello and welcome to episode number 85 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, March 29th, 2010. In this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I will be playing the conclusion of my interview with Bentley Christie of redwormcomposting.com. And this interview is about 25 minutes long. And then I will be sharing some of my own comments and observations about some of my gardening activities this spring. And I will do that briefly. And then I will talk a little bit about uh, next week's show. So here is the second part of my interview with Bentley Christie of redwormcomposting.com. Okay, let's talk about feeding. What can you feed them, and how do you know how often to feed them? Feeding is generally, it's you know, I noticed you, you had a, a show on uh, black soldier fly larvae, and in comparison to those, it's a bit of a narrower range of materials. Generally, it's whatever you would add into your backyard composter is generally going to be fine for worms. You know, volume is a very important consideration because these worms are, you know, are a living organism. You have to take in that into consideration and adding too much material once you're going to end up with overheating and potentially uh, ammonia release and these sorts of things. So <clears throat> that's certainly something to keep in mind, but fruit, vegetable, coffee grounds, tea bags. I would say in moderation, uh, spicy materials, things like onions and hot peppers and things like that, because they have those volatile oils that uh, could harm the worms if they're there in, in high concentrations. I would either recommend sort of pre-composting them initially, maybe just in a separate system and then feeding them to the worms or cooking them would probably help a lot or just generally using them in moderation. And same goes with really, really acidic stuff. I add plenty of, of orange peels and oranges and, and these citrus fruit to my systems. But if you're just getting started, um, it's probably not a bad idea to add those very much in moderation or even steer clear of them altogether. Um, again, you don't want it to get too acidic for one thing. And then again, the, the oils in the, the uh, rinds of, of those fruit as well. So that's basically it. So fruits and vegetables are, are going to be your primary material. Oh, the uh, starchy materials, things like pasta and bread, you know, they can be excellent, excellent worm food. But the problem is if you add too much of these at once, you can end up with a, an anaerobic goo, essentially. And this is not, not ideal for, for the worms. I've actually... Oh, I've learned all these things from experience, and I did an experiment in university that involved adding timbits to uh, a worm bin, and that was was not the greatest idea. Essentially, these these materials, if you have enough of them, will ferment, and it smelled like a brewery, essentially, and, and the worms weren't happy at all. So you do want to be a little bit cautious. I've heard that these starchy materials can be uh, appreciated by the worms. But again, just add them in moderation to get started and, and, and sort of see how you go, go from there. And one other thing I should mention about the things like bread, for example, you definitely want to bury those materials. They tend to grow molds a lot more readily than some of the, the fruits and vegetables. And you don't want to get all those mold spores 
uh, blowing around and, and inhaling those things. So I mean, in general, I would always recommend some sort of burial for your food waste anyway, just because it tends to discourage any other uh, annoying pests like the fruit flies and, and uh, these, <clears throat> the molds as well. So yeah, I hope I, hope I answered your question there. You and others on your website have been very creative and innovative, innovative in the use of these worms. Um, I've seen some of the projects that you have on your blog. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about some of these innovations like homemade manure, vermiponics, oh. and the worm bin, or I'm sorry, the worm in. Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly won't take credit uh, for any of those. Well, I guess homemade manure was sort of my harebrained idea. But yeah, I, I do love to experiment a lot. And I come from a bit of a scientific background. I'm a terrible scientist, really, when it comes down to it. But I do love I love experimentation and just trying different things with these worms. And it's incredible what these worms are capable of, as I've discovered over the years with all these different things that I've done. Um, as far as the homemade manure, the sort of rationale behind that is I've over the years I've noticed that pretty well the ultimate material for redworms is farmyard manure and generally farmyard manure that's been mixed with a, a bedding material such as as straw or wood shavings and and, and whatnot. So I guess I, I was sort of thinking well how can I create something that's somewhat similar but using the materials that I have on hand and that, that would of course be the the food waste and the bedding materials. So essentially, it's it's nothing ultra fancy. It just sort of takes the basic idea of this fibrous comp content along with this food value content and mixing it all together. So essentially, what I what I did the first time I made it was I blended up a lot of of the food waste and then I made sure to mix it with lots and lots and lots of this shredded um, cardboard and these other various absorbent bedding materials. So that it ended up very, very wet, but that a lot of that moisture was retained in the material. You know, if you add something like a blended food waste, that can be excellent material for your worms, don't get me wrong. But you do have to take into consideration that moisture content. And if you just sort of throw it in your bin, all that moisture is just going to drain down. And that can potentially cause some, some uh, bad conditions to develop. And also is going to impede the airflow. So... That was sort of the idea. I wanted to create this, this ultimate material that basically anybody could create. And, it, you know, the worms certainly love it. The only thing I would say about it is that it does take quite a bit of time to make it. So it's not necessarily something that everybody is going to want to, to do themselves. Um, but yes, that's sort of the, the, the idea behind that. As far as the, the vermiponics, that's actually somebody else's idea. I actually got the inspiration from that. I've, I've been a follower of what's known as aquaponics for quite some time. And essentially the idea there is it's a combination of aquaculture and hydroponics. So what you have is, is your aquaculture tanks with fish and then the water there is, is pumped up to, to plant grow beds. And one of the people that was on this uh, aquaponics group that I'm a part of started talking about what he referred to as aquavermiculture or something along those lines. 
And of course, that, that certainly caught my attention because I was already interested in, in aquaponics. And, and of course, this had the, the worm element. And essentially, the idea is there is that in, you forget the fish altogether. You know, the fish can take quite a while to develop. And there's various other disadvantages at, at working with them. And his idea was just, why not create this bed, this grow bed, that's essentially a worm bed, but that the plants will grow up in as well. And so that's sort of what he did. And, and I wrote a post about, about his work. And that inspired me, as, as is typically the case, to start up my own experiments. And so I set up my own small vermicomponic system. And it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I, I can't wait till I can actually get outside and do it properly with uh, the sunlight and everything else. But I've actually been pretty impressed with, with the results uh, thus far. You have uh, the worm bed. I, I guess it's in the worm castings that the uh, plants are growing and are you are you using you're not using grow lights or um, heating elements or anything like that yeah see that's the thing that's the I think that's sort of the limitation that I'm faced with I do have a fluorescent fixture that has a couple of, of fluorescent light bulbs in it but you know as anybody who's done actual hydroponics or just growing in general will know there's some limitations as far as fluorescent lighting goes. So uh, what I'm seeing, I'm, I have a okay little growth of, of lettuce and some radishes and whatnot, but as far as actually trying to grow tomatoes or, or something a little bit more intensive, I, I would definitely need, need a, a brighter environment. Um, the heating, it's down in my basement, so it's a bit cool during the winter, but, you know, up, up towards uh, 20... 20C or 68 Fahrenheit is probably around the range that it's sitting at. So it's okay for, for some of these cooler cooler weather crops. Okay, now tell us about the worm in. The worm in, um, now that's it's sort of a funny history to that. And I, you know, it's, it's bizarre thinking back to how that all started. That it that did actually start from a really, really goofy experiment of mine. Quite some time ago, I, I decided to set up a system that that sort of incorporated a bit of recycling along with, with the, the concept of flow-through vermicomposting. And flow-through vermicomposting is essentially the idea of adding waste in one end and then harvesting compost out the other end. And what I did was I took an old pair of jeans and I tied the bottoms, tied the uh, pant legs to constrict the bottom. And I essentially made a worm bin, if you can call it that, out of this, out of this uh, pair of pants. <laughs> and I called it the, the Creepy Pants Vermicomposting System. And again, it was just a totally harebrained idea that I did. And I just wanted to see what happened. And because it's essentially a cotton, you know, whatever, derivative or whatever, that uh, the denim material that, that these genes are made of, it didn't work out very well. It, you saw quite a bit of fungal growth on the outside of the of the genes, and and my mother-in-law was <laughs> coming to visit, so I had to had to cancel that experiment in a hurry. But um, for whatever reason, some person who was a very very talented seamstress saw what I did, and and she thought, well, what if I use a really resistant material and create you know, a single bag type of system and following the same sort of principles. And that's, that's essentially how the worm in was born. So her name is Robin Crisp, by the way. And, and she came up with this, this very innovative system that is very elegant in its simplicity, but also in its effectiveness. It's just, it's, it's in, a, in essence, it's a bag, 
but it has uh, drawstrings at the bottom that allow you to harvest the vermicompost once it's ready. And just sort of in line with the principles of flow through vermicomposting, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the worms tend to stay up <clears throat> in the zone where the, the food materials are. And so this is a very effective way to basically separate the worms from this rich compost material. So that's, that's sort of the, the worm in, in a nutshell. Okay, great. Is there, are there any other uh, innovations or air experimentations that you feel uh, our listeners should be aware of? Um, well, I think the flow-through concept in general is, is pretty well <clears throat> the most important innovation in vermicomposting. And there's a variety of, of flow-through systems available. Uh, probably the most common ones that, that people have access to are, are these, the various stacking systems. There are quite a few different models out there, uh, such as the can of worms is in a prime example, worm chalet. And what these are are essentially a system of stacking trays, all of them having a screen on the bottom. And again, the idea is that you're allowing the worms to move up and move up and move up to follow the, the freshest food material and then eventually leaving you with a, you know, in theory, a uh, tray full of, of the finished, uh, finished vermicompost. So definitely once you've, my recommendation is once you've mastered the, the, the Rubbermaid tub and you've you sort of familiarized yourself with vermicomposting in general, that's not a bad idea to, to sort of go off to on the, <clears throat> the next step being the, the flow through system, just because it is, it is a lot easier to, sort of accomplish what a lot of people want to do with the with these systems which is to uh, produ produce this compost and of course to compost their waste so i think that's probably the primary uh, innovation as far as vermicomposting goes it's not really as mainstream as as the thermophilic composting and <clears throat> anaerobic digestion and these things so i don't think that the uh, development community is really become established quite yet, but hopefully we'll see some uh, more innovations in coming years as it becomes more popular. So let's talk about the castings. What, what's so special about these castings that result from composting with, with redworms? And how do you recommend these castings be applied to the garden for best results? Well, it's, it's the one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of people talk about castings, a lot of people talk about vermicompost. Really, when it comes down to, I guess, the more, the castings are essentially what come out, comes out the end of the worm. And vermicompost is essentially just the material. Vermicompost is probably a more accurate term to use, or worm compost, just because there is going to be some material that doesn't end up passing through the worm. But when it comes down to it, all of it is presumably, if, if it's been allowed to you know, have enough processing time, uh, a stabilized uh, humus rich material that is going to have a lot of the very beneficial properties that regular compost has, but certainly some other properties that regular compost doesn't have. You know, passing through the worms, I believe it, it, it can be in, sort of encased in a bit of a, a mu mucus coating, which can help sort of a, provide a bit of a, a time release uh, nutrient sort of properties. And just the, the microbial community of, of the earthworm digestive system, it provides a whole different range of, of beneficial microbes that are going to end up on this material. 
and make it quite different from from regular compost. Now, in the research, what they've discovered is that significantly less of of the vermicompost needs to be used in order to uh, see some really really impressive benefits in terms of plant growth. And another very important thing that they've discovered is that it's not really the nutrients that are are doing it. You know, they they set up some really really interesting experiments where they provided the plants with all the nutrients they needed in the form of inorganic fertilizer and then they added the castings and you know, the vermicompost just to see what would happen. And with, with amounts as low as 5% of the total potting soil mix, they were seeing these significant growth increases. So they've, they've come to realize that there's some other properties and potentially uh, elements in their uh, growth hormones and whatnot that can help to uh, improve that growth. So, you know, I know I'm a little biased, but, but I like to think that there, there are some properties of vermicompost that do set it apart from... Uh, from regular compost. So as far as use goes, with a, with a bulk regular compost, I would probably use it you know, very freely in a top dress and all sorts of different applications just because you tend to get a lot more of it. And like I said, it's not quite as potent, but as far as uh, the vermicompost goes, really all you need, um, I'd recommend if you're, you're starting some plants, you know, a scoopful down in the bottom of your planting hole, maybe a little bit around the, the root zone. And uh, worm compost tea is another thing that people might want to consider that helps to, to get a bit more bang for your buck. And the idea there is to essentially use high, high quality castings of vermicompost and essentially sort of put them in a, in a, in a tub of, of aerated water. And basically, then you use that that liquid and spray it on your plants and, and around the root zone and whatnot. And again, it has these beneficial microbes, and just just uh, well, actually, some other benefits I didn't even mention are uh, disease control and apparently even arthropod pest control. And all of this is amazingly enough has been uh, documented in the the academic literature. So it's lots of lots of good things about this material. That's for sure. So where can people get some of these red worms so that they can, um, you know, build their worm bin and get started? Well, I mean, it, when it depends on where you're located. A lot of, in North America, there are incredible number of different red worm suppliers. So it probably wouldn't be uh, that difficult. Now, it'd be the very, very tall worms. So they, they handle shipping very, very well. But for those of you who want to, to uh get started in your local region, you might want to contact the Agricultural Extension. You know, I'm up in Canada, so I'm not really familiar with these things, but I think that's what it's called, your local extension station or whatever, whatever it is, or uh, local gardening clubs. And just generally, even just surfing the web, you know, type in whatever your location, plus red worms or composting worms, and you should be in luck. And like I said, there's a plenty of, of sources that will, will ship you the worms as well. So there's no shortage of, of uh, red worm suppliers. Just make sure you are getting the, the right type of worm. Again, you don't want to be going out and, and digging up your night crawlers from your, your garden there and, and or collecting them off the sidewalk after a rain, because those are going to be the soil worms and they're, they're just not going to be up to the job of uh, doing this composting. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think um, 
would be useful for the listeners to know? I guess uh, I, well, I encourage everybody to have fun with vermicomposting. I, I certainly have a lot of fun with it. Um, stick to the fundamentals. I guess that would be my, my biggest recommendation. I think a lot of people try to complicate things and try all these different techniques and whatnot. If you sort of just consider the basic fundamentals of the process and of the requirements of these worms, it can be quite, quite easy to uh, get the hang of this. And one thing I actually just remembered that uh, as far as, as how much food waste to add, um, my recommendation there for sure is to let the worms be your guide. A lot of people get these, these guidelines in their head like, oh, I can add uh, for every pound of worms, I can add a half pound of waste or a, a pound of waste or whatever. It totally depends on the system. It totally depends on the waste material you're adding. It totally depends on the temperature. It totally depends on the handling of those materials. So please do not take those guidelines seriously. I always recommend just adding materials in moderation, letting them age beforehand if possible, and see what the worms do with it. When you first add the worms, they're, they're going to take a bit of time to get used to the system and just get used to to handling the waste that you're giving them so be patient with them and whatever you can do to to help the process if you can grind up the material blend it you know increase the surface area don't add fresh chunks of broccoli and carrots and these resistant materials are going to be very very difficult to break down so if you really want to speed up the process it really helps if you can start that uh, structural breakdown. So freezing them, uh, cooking materials, grinding, blending, these sorts of ideas. And then again, just watch what the worms do with it and, and don't overfeed the system. Essentially, if the worms seem to be getting hung up on, on the materials, you don't want to just keep adding it and adding and adding it, you know, based on these guidelines that you're reading. So that's probably my biggest recommendation for, for anyone just getting started. So should a person actually see the the material completely broken down before they add more food? I mean, how do you let the worms guide you in the process? Yeah, well, that's a good question, actually. And I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, again, it depends on how you, you've been adding it. If you've been blending the material for sure, you know, it's not a bad idea to basically to watch it vanish. But, you know, some of these materials, avocado peels and, and you know, the broccoli and these things, you're going to be left with, with some sort of rind or whatnot. And, and obviously, I don't expect to have everybody wait until that becomes totally broken down. Some of these things will never be broken down and you, you just screen them out later. So um, what I would recommend is, again, do the, the burial is a great idea. And so start these, these feeding pockets. If you're using this this tub type of system, you know maybe four corners of your bin, and start in the first corner, add the material. Maybe a few days later, add some material over in the other corner. Maybe a few days later, and so on. And then once you come back, check on the status of the, the first hole. And if it's it looks like they're really doing nothing, then there's a good chance if you have it in a cool environment. It's amazing how how one of these systems will slow down. So make sure that it's in a relatively warm environment. And yeah, if it's, I mean, I, I, don't, I hate to come up with hard numbers, but maybe three quarters of the way finished. You, you certainly don't have to, to uh, wait until it's completely vanished. But at the same time, if you do see that it's really starting to pile up there, you have to be careful with that. And, and the recommendation in that case is to either remove some of the material or uh, leave the lid off to provide a bit more airflow because it can become a pretty toxic 
environment in there if, if you have an enclosed bin with, with uh, too much food material in there. Okay. Well, Bentley Christie of the website redwormcomposting.com. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, and thanks for your enthusiasm about these redworms. Thanks for maintaining uh, the site that you maintain. We will link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And um, again, thank you for joining us. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Frank. It's been a lot of fun. That concludes my interview with Bentley Christie of redwormcomposting.com. Naturally, I will link to that website on the show notes for this episode of the Agronovations podcast. And I'd like to say hello to the listeners who are joining us from the redwormcomposting.com website. I know that uh, Bentley has an active user community on that blog and on the forums for that website. So I'd like to say welcome to all of you. And if you enjoyed this show and you enjoy topics related to sustainable agriculture, topics like redworm composting, then you might want to check out the show archive for the Agro-Innovations podcast because we have a lot of great previous shows where you can find a, a lot of information about many things that uh, I'm sure are similar and will pique your interest. And also you might want to tune in for future shows because we have some great shows in the lineup well, it's late March, it's almost April, and I have been digging my garden. Uh, the garden that I'm digging now is not the same garden that I have been working for the past oh, five or six years before this. It is uh, land that I just started working last summer, and so it's kind of a process getting it fertilized and getting the garden beds dug up and delineated and getting the ir irrigation installed. Because where I live, I live in a very dry climate here in New Mexico. So you can't really grow anything unless you have some kind of irrigation. And I'm using two kinds of irrigation right now. I'm using the clay pot Oya irrigation, which you can learn about. I believe it's in episode number 48 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, if I'm not mistaken. An interview that I did with Larry Salee of Seed and Light International, and he talks quite a bit about using Oyas as a means of irrigation. And I am doing that in part of my garden, and I am installing a rain drip kind of sprinkler system in another part of the garden. And I notice in the installation of this rain drip system, which it's a technology I have worked before, it's worked with before, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Uh, you can get the parts for it at most of your stores around town, Home Depot, Lowe's, and I'd like to think that the local businesses in your community have these products as well, although I have not found a local business here locally that has these products. I must admit I have not looked quite as diligently maybe as I should. But one of the things I have noticed about these products is while they are very conservative in the use of water, and while they allow you to get irrigation fairly hassle-free to places all around in your garden and your yard, I wonder what it's going to be like with these parts. A lot of these parts are fabricated in China, and they tend to degrade in the garden after several years and you know start to leak. The problem I've been having now is the store that I buy 
these parts from, which is a Lowe's up the street from where I live, uh, they are constantly changing their lineup and going with different distributors. And so some of the parts that you can get are not always backward compatible. Uh, the couplings sometimes vary by millimeters. And so when you have that variation, uh, you can't get some of the parts you have from previous years to work with the new parts. So it's a little bit of a frustrating experience, and it's not the first time that it has happened to me, and it makes me wonder in this small kind of microcosm experience that I'm having with these parts, um, how sustainable some of this, it's not even complex, but it's it requires manufactured plastic parts, how sustainable some of these manufactured plastic part irrigation systems are going to be uh, in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years as we start to enter into an energy descent kind of situation. Well, we already are in the energy descent situation. I should say I'm starting to notice in a lot of other areas, uh, I'm sure everybody else is noticing, especially if you're in the United States, people around them are poorer. Uh, we have less money and resources available to invest in maintaining the infrastructure of suburbia in here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a lot of the roofs are tar roofs. A lot of the uh, exterior cladding on the homes is stucco, and that stuff starts to go, and it, um, it can be expensive to get it replaced. It is more and more difficult for people to maintain things like stucco, and I'm seeing stucco get into some of the wall, or I'm seeing water get into some of the walls on some of the buildings that we own. And I'm wondering if uh, I'm starting to see the beginnings of some of James Howard Kunstler's predictions and if we're not kind of running into the law of diminishing returns on some of this stuff. Another thing I notice in the garden is uh, there's a lot of trash, a lot of garbage just everywhere. It blows in with the wind. Um, I've noticed even in, even in remote places in Bolivia, no matter where you start digging, you come you come across plastic plastic bags uh pieces of styrofoam i notice that's very much the same here so there's a lot of wreckage and trash around now i should say about the oya irrigation the oya irrigation is very low input so i don't have to worry about parts fitting on parts like i do with the rain drip irrigation system and that might be, uh, we might have to move more towards older systems like that, that we don't require these plastic fabricated parts. I don't know, perhaps if we could potentially make something like RipRap work on a local decentralized, non-fossil fuel basis using recycled parts and materials, recycled plastics, uh, milk cartons like Adrian Bowyer talks about in the RipRap podcast that I did with him. Maybe it is possible that we can salvage some of these uh, technologies that are, you know, they're really pretty useful irrigation technologies to distribute water across a landscape when you have uh, water under pressure. But having to rely on these parts being imported from China, uh, is, it's just not feasible or practical over the long term. Now, next week's show... I will be inter interviewing Michael Schumann, who wrote the book The Small Mart Revolution, 
And that will be a two-part interview as well, like my interview with Bentley Christie was. And I really encourage people to tune in for that because in terms of how we deal with our increasingly impoverished communities, uh, Michael Schumann has a really powerful vision for it. He backs it up with a lot of statistics and research, and his vision is very much in line with things we've talked about in terms of Gandhian economics and um, the E.F. Schumacher Society. So if you tune in for this episode, this upcoming episode number 86 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I promise you won't be disappointed and um, you know you will learn a lot of good strategies and arguments to bring to bear in if you are involved in the transition movement or uh, if you're thinking of getting a transition movement started in your town, the ideas of Michael Schumann definitely need to be incorporated in, into the transition initiatives. So I will leave you with those thoughts and hopefully looking forward to next week's episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I will be traveling to tomorrow, which is actually Monday, which is the day that this podcast is being released, to Oklahoma to the USDA ARS Agricultural Research Service Grazing Lands Research Center. And hopefully you will uh, hear some more about that in the near future on the Agro Innovations Podcast. So stay tuned for that as well. Until next week, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos. <laughs>